The very basics of what it means to be a Christian is to know Jesus and to make Him known. When you read through the New Testament, you see this is really what it's all about, that Christ came to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, that we might be forgiven of our trespasses against our Creator and reconciled to Him, that we would know Him and love Him and be loved by Him and enjoy Him. And when you love someone, what you want to do is you want to, you want to tell others about Him. And this is precisely what believers do. We, we know Christ and we want, to, we want to make Him known. We want to help other people to, to understand the good news of the gospel about how they too can be forgiven and reconciled to this God and know the peace that He gives that passes all understanding. As we follow Jesus, we want to seek to help others to follow Jesus. And as we do that, He strengthens us for the task, even in the task, or even in the text that we heard this morning that, that John read from Matthew 28, that Jesus promises His presence. I am with you always to the end of the age, that He sent His Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us in the work. And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while and attempting to both pursue Him in faith, but also to make Him known, I think we understand why it is that we need His presence with us. Why we need His Spirit to empower us and why He's called the Comforter to help us. Because in the midst of helping to others to follow Jesus and to, to make the, the name of Christ known, there is, there is opposition. We have been promised that if we seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. And that persecution can come in lots of forms, uh, and it has for believers around uh, the world from from believers having their blood shed for the, the name of Christ all the way down to just losing relationships or having people look at you strangely or unfriend you on social media or whatever it may be. But, but the pressure is real for believers. We can feel it from the culture that's around us. We can feel it in our workplaces. We can feel it in, with family members who would reject the, the Jesus that we so love, with friends, neighbors. And over time the pressure can become discouraging. We can begin to despair. We can become tired and at times weary in the work of making Christ known. Well, that's exactly how this church in Philadelphia felt. They, had, they were in a place where the pressure against them for their testimony of Jesus was great, and Jesus comes to them and gives them a word of encouragement which I pray will encourage us and spur us on as well. Look with me at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. This is the sixth of seven churches that Jesus speaks to in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and... No one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set you before an I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you 
from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we consider this word that Jesus gives to the church this morning, I think the big idea, the overarching theme that runs through this is this. A weak weak church finds strength in the certainty that Jesus loves them and secures them as His people. A weak church finds strength in the certainty that Jesus loves them and secures them as His people. Now as we go through this text, it would probably be helpful to know a little bit about this city because there's several things that are going on in the city and the culture there that impact what's going on in, in this church. So the church here in Philadelphia is some 30 miles southeast of, of Sardis. The word Philadelphos means brotherly love, which some of you would know that from the city in Pennsylvania. But I've been to an Eagles game and there's not a whole lot of love there. The name Philadelphos came um, when the city was established in uh, 189 B.C. by a, name, uh, a king by the name of Emumenes. It's a, named, it's a city named in the honor of his love for his brother, Attalus. So he was known for his love for his brother, and he was named, the city was named after that affection that he had for his, his brother. And the reason that this place was chosen is that it was a, a strategic location. It was built on an elevated plateau at a crossroads of three trade routes, so it was economically secure. Uh, The region once had an active volcano which produced rich soil, so it was agriculturally successful. It also bordered uh, three influential countries, uh, Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia, so it's geographically strategic. Uh, The chief god of the city was Dionysus, or Bacchus, who is the god of of wine, who uh, played the, the, the flute to drive away worry and care. It was supposed to be a place of, of city and uh, a city of, of, of peace and enjoyment. What's interesting, though, about the, the city is that the reason it was chosen to be right there is because uh, Attalus saw potential for that city to be a missions center for the Hellenistic culture. You see, he loved Greek culture. And, and he thought that this city, because of where it was, that it could be a lighthouse to shine the glory of the Greek culture and all of its language and its philosophies and civilization throughout the regions of the East. Because of this, it was actually called the gateway to the East for, for Hellenistic culture. It was known for its, its literature and its, its theater and its, its music. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. One other thing that was important about this city, just to note, is that it was, it was, it was also a, though it was strategic, it was also a little bit of a scary place to live because it was located on a fault line, 
And they would have frequent earthquakes. Um, one, a major one in 17 AD that they felt tremors for two years afterwards. Well, those, those tremors that happened literally and historically were also reverberating through the church because of the persecution that continually shook this church. You see, there was an opposition to the church in this city, primarily by the Jewish synagogue, which we'll come back to in, in a moment. But to this church, in this city, Jesus comes, just as He has to each of the other uh, churches in these cities, and he, he speaks to them and reveals something about Himself that's going to be really important for what they're facing. He says in verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Notice Jesus refers to himself here as the Holy One. The word holy, it means to be set apart. It means there's no one like him. This is a title that's often used of God Himself, including in the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, verse 8 and 6.10, it's used of, of the Lord God Almighty. This is an allusion to Jesus' deity. He comes as the Holy One of Heaven to this weak, feeble church who needs to know that He sees them, and indeed He does. He also comes to them as the True One. This is used eight times in the book of Revelation. Because Jesus wants them to know that He indeed is the source and the standard of truth. That all other gods um, that, are, that are talked about throughout the book of, of Revelation, and that they certainly would have been tempted to, to go after, they're all false gods with counterfeit joys. But that He's the true God who speaks truth. He's the Holy One and the True One. And then did you see what He has in His hand? He possesses the key of David. The key of David. This is a reference to Isaiah, a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 22 where the prophet spoke of Eliakim. Eliakim was the palace administrator for, for the king. He had the key to open and shut all the riches uh, of, of the king's house. The house being the, the house of, of, of David where the, in the city of Jerusalem where the temple of God was. Eliakim, in that sense, served as a picture of Christ who here holds the true key of David who opens the door to the kingdom of God and ushers former sinners in now as, as the redeemed and the beloved of God. Now this is going to be again important with this idea of a door and, and key because this little church um, had the door of the, the synagogue shut on them by the unbelieving Jewish com community who saw Jesus as an imposter. But Jesus comes to this church and says, no, no, no. I come to you as the Holy One, the True One, the True Messiah. I'm the one who opens the true door into the kingdom of God. And you will be received by grace. He comes to them who have been rejected to remind them that He loves them and that they are secure in Him. So Jesus, the sovereign key-holding King, speaks to His church in Philadelphia. And as He does, as with each of the churches, we're going to notice three things. Something good, something bad, and something hopeful. Something good, something bad, something hopeful. 
So something good that we're going to notice here is most of the sermon. So you'll be nervous thinking, wow, there's two more points. It's, it's the longest of all of the points. But it's important because Jesus has a lot of words of encouragement for this church. The second point, something bad, may be the shortest point that I've ever preached. Because he has nothing bad to say to them. And then the third, something hopeful, will be slightly shorter and moderate. Here we go. Number one, something good. Something good. He's going to point out that they are faithful in the face of Satan's synagogue. They are faithful in the face of Satan's synagogue. Verse 9. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. As he has with every other church, Jesus says, I know. I know here your your works. He's fully aware of everything that is occurring in all of his churches. Everything that they do, everything that they say, everything that they endure for the sake of his name. He says, I, I, I know. He is the all-knowing overseer of his bride. He also says, I know that you have but little power or little strength, your translation, translation may say. We're unsure exactly why it was that this was a weak congregation. It may be that there was a, it was a small congregation that had lost members because of the persecution. Or, or maybe the members were, were vulnerable because they were from a, a lower class and they would have had no voice or influence in the society. Or, or maybe it's just that they're, they're, they're weak and weary from the persecution and the opposition that was coming against them. Or maybe it was a combination of all of it. But what we do know is that they were weak and they were weary. And Jesus says, I know. I know it. I know you're tired. I, I know it's hard. We know they've faced persecution. Certainly from the society at large, as all the other churches had, but specifically from the Jewish community. Look again at verse 9. He speaks of those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not and lie. Now, just to be really clear right here, this is, again, as we've said uh, another time in the study of the book of Revelation, this is not anti-Semitic. Jesus, who is speaking, was Jewish. John, who is writing, was Jewish. Rather, what this is, this is a divinely authoritative evaluation of these descendants of Abraham who are now persecuting the church. Jesus says in their persecution of his bride, they are actually aligning with Satan. Now, how are they aligning with, with Satan? Why, why does he call them the, the synagogue of Satan? Well, if you're familiar with Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, this doesn't sound new. We've actually heard this sort of language before. Jesus, if you remember in John chapter 8, when he was speaking to the religious leaders of the day, he called them on this same thing. 
Listen to this from John chapter 8, starting in verse 39. The Jewish leader said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, which was to believe. But now you seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. But you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus brings some strong words right there. But what he is doing for those religious leaders is he is highlighting for them the fact that if you are not for Jesus, you are against Jesus. That there's really only two groups of people of, in, in the world. Those who follow the deception of Satan, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 lays out, that's true of Gentiles and Jews alike. Or those who have realized that they were following after Satan's ways by God's grace, have been convicted of their sin, have turned from it in faith, and now trust Jesus, and who are born again, that now God is uniquely their Father. Jesus says the very fact that the religious leaders of the day were persecuting Him proved that they weren't of God the Father because God the Father sent Jesus, and Jesus was speaking the words of the Father. In Matthew 23, Jesus even speaks about how these religious leaders did evil evangelism. Listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites means pretenders. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a, a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Listen, Jesus pulled no punches with these religious leaders. He wanted them to know that, listen, you have, you're lying about who I am. You're lying about who God is, and you're leading people astray. Jesus says the same thing to the Jewish people who were living in Philadelphia, the unbelieving Jewish people who were living in Philadelphia. Certainly there were Jews who had received Christ as a Messiah and part of the church, but those who had not, he says, you're joining with Satan. You see, they're lying about Jesus, saying He's not the Messiah when He really is. They blaspheme Jesus' name rather than bow down before Him in worship. They shut believers out of the synagogue rather than receiving them and the gospel that they proclaim. They say that they are Jews, but Jesus says if they were really Jews, they'd be doing what Abraham did which is to rejoice in Jesus' day and to believe upon Him as Lord and Savior and Messiah. Jesus says, I know. I know your deeds, and I know their deeds. And I know you're weak. I know the pressure has been hard. I know you've lost friends. I mean, think about this. Many of them would have been in those synagogues for a long time, reading the Torah together and singing songs together. We had friends and family there, business associates. They would have had, they would have known people there, and now there's persecution, there's rejection. 
But despite the way the persecution had weakened them, they'd been faithful. He says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. Some of you in following Jesus have lost friendships and relationships that are very dear to you. Some of you have been outed by communities that you used to be a part of. Hear Jesus' word to this church in Philadelphia for you as well. He says, I know, I see. They have not backed down from their devotion to Jesus or softened their stance on Him as Savior. And their faithfulness has occurred with a door opened for them. Look at verse 9. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, the open door that Jesus has set before them likely has a double meaning. One has to do with salvation and entrance into the kingdom of God, and the other has to do with evangelism and announcing salvation and and calling people to come into the, the kingdom of God. We'll consider both of them here. This open door that Jesus has set before these believers who are weary but are embraced by Him. First, in regards to salvation. So Jesus has opened a door for these believers to enter His kingdom and to fellowship with Him. He's opened the door of the kingdom. He has the keys of David, right? Now remember, this is important because the Jewish community has cast these Christians out of the synagogue and has shut the door on them. They've been showing hatred to these believers, but Jesus says, I have opened a door for you to enter into my kingdom and enjoy my love, and nobody can shut that door because I have the keys. And we know he's, enter- or he's speaking of entering his kingdom because, again, verse 7, of the key of David, which is a, a reference to the promised Davidic kingdom on which the throne and- will last forever and ever. There is an everlasting kingdom of whom Jesus is the fulfillment. He says, I'm ushering you into my kingdom. This is similar to the way the open door is used in Acts 14.27 where Paul and Barnabas came to Antioch and testified how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They they come back and they report, God is saving Gentiles, non-Jews, and bringing them into the kingdom of David, into the kingdom of Christ. Hallelujah. This door has been opened for these Believers here in Philadelphia as well. They've been welcomed to come into the kingdom and to fellowship with the king. And this, this brothers and sisters, is, this is the good news of the gospel. That, that Jesus is indeed the son of God who came from heaven proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he went about teaching truths about the kingdom. And then he proved his authority to, do, to teach and to call people to repent of their sins and to trust in him by working miracles. But the Jews of his day expected Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom right away, but rather he came to first rule in the heart. And in order to rule in the heart, there's got to be idols of our hearts that's got to be dethroned, and that's why Jesus went to the cross, and there he suffered and he died and received the justice that we deserved on the cross. And then three days later, after, three days later after being in the grave, he rose from the dead, And now, with the authority that has been given to him, proclaims forgiveness, amnesty granted to all who will turn from their treason against the king and come and be forgiven. 
and be welcomed into His kingdom and fellowship with Him forevermore. Jesus says, a door has been opened. I am your King. Come, enjoy my love. And they have. These believers have come. They've been shut out of the door of the synagogue, but have been welcomed into the door that will never be shut for them. They have come. Which, by the way, if you're here today and you know yourself to to not be a, a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this word today as an invitation to you as well. That this same Jesus who who speaks to this church here, he, he reigns and rules even today. And this is a moment of mercy for you to turn from your sin and to know him as your Savior and your King. This should be both a welcome, but also a warning to not align with those who oppose him. So Jesus had opened a door for these believers to enter his kingdom and fellowship. But secondly, this also has to do with evangelism. Jesus has opened a door for the believers who entered to now proclaim his kingdom and offer fellowship to others. What what we just just talked about right there. Come and see and believe. In in the New Testament, the the phrase open doors almost always refers to missionary opportunities. Paul used this often. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul planned to stay in Ephesus because a great door for effective work has opened. Or in 2 Corinthians 2.12, a door was opened in Troas to preach the gospel. Or Colossians 4.3, that he asked the church to pray that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. You see, Jesus had opened a door for the believers in Philadelphia to enter the kingdom of God, but he'd also opened a door for them to spread the gospel of the kingdom of God. Because following Jesus inherently means that we're helping other people follow Jesus. That's some of the basics of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I hope this reminded you of what we heard at the the beginning about even why this city was founded. Remember, Attalus saw uh, Philadelphia as a place from which to spread the the Greek language and philosophy and culture. But Jesus wanted this church to, to see that he has placed them in the place that he has to spread the the grace and the truth and the hope of his gospel to people who right then are, are heading for an eternity of hell apart from him. Jesus had given them a decisive position in a defining moment with an undeniable responsibility to make his name known. He said the city was built to make Greek culture known. That's gonna pass away. Make known my name. Jesus says. Now, before we press on and look a little bit more about the church of Philadelphia, I thought this would be an appropriate time to just pause for a moment for some application for for our church. We've already talked about the, the fact that we should celebrate the fact that the door has been opened for us to enter in and fellowship with the King. But for those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior... I think it's important for us to understand, as Jesus, in in all of these, he he tells all the churches to listen in. Not just the seven churches there, but all churches who are ever going to hear this and say, how might this apply to us? And Delray Baptist Church, I think it would be good for us to consider that the Lord has done the same for us in our day. Every church in every age has a responsibility to pause and to examine what Christ might be doing through them. What open door he might uniquely be giving them. So let's talk about first what that might mean for you personally. One of the things I want to encourage all of us to remember is that you are who you are 
And you are where you are for a reason. You are who you are, and you are where you are for a reason. God made you who you are right now today for, on purpose. He designed your body. He gave you the personality that you have. He has given you all of the unique experiences. He has ordained and used and allowed joys and sorrows. He's even used our sinful failures and His restoring grace to shape you and to mold you into the very person that you are today. To uniquely represent Him where He's placing you. Listen, friend, God wastes nothing. We are all very different and that's one of the things that he highlights in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the uniqueness of the body. We're not all the same. We're all different. And God has done that on purpose. Which means everybody in here has a role because God has uniquely shaped you and molded you. But God has not only made you who you are for a reason, he's also placed you where you are for a reason. Just like he did this church in Philadelphia, he has put you where he's put you on purpose. Acts 17.26 says he has determined the time and the place of your dwelling. That means when you are in history and where you are geographically is under the sovereign oversight of God Almighty. That means you are in the family that you were born into on purpose. You live in the community that you live in on purpose. So you thought all those times you couldn't find a spot to live and you wound up over where you are was like just bad luck? Ain't no such thing as luck. God oversees everything. He, he gave you the neighbors uh-huh, on purpose. The job that you landed, you thought, man, I'm just so wicked smart. How can I not get this? Well, maybe you are smart, but God gave you your smartness to put you in the job that you're in. God arranges all of these things. Every, every seat on a plane, every parking spot, every, every, every server at a restaurant, every person at the checkout line. One of the things my wife always talks about is how every brief encounter is from the Lord. Are you aware of that? That God is sovereign over everything. And that He made you who you are and put you where you are on purpose with an open door to make His name known. But that's not just true of us individually, that's also true for us corporately. So Jesus is speaking to this church in Philadelphia as a whole, and I think it's important for us, all of us, to understand what God is, is doing. That we are, Delray Baptist Church, who we are and where we are for a reason. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this before, but he has uniquely given us open doors. I'll give you five of them. Number one. One of the unique open doors that the Lord has placed before us is unreached people groups who are around us. We ought reach unreached people groups with the gospel. If you're, if you're familiar with the history of American Christianity, um, one of the things that you'll find is that for centuries, the American church has been praying and raising money and sending workers to take the gospel to people who have never heard in other parts of the world. Now, there's times we've gotten the Savior complex about that and have done it wrong, and there's lots of things you could talk about there. But the desire for people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus is a good one. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you realize that in our day that God 
has brought unreached people groups, meaning people who have never heard about Christ, in our very neighborhoods. I mean, people live all around us who come from peoples who have never heard the gospel before, who have never met an actual Christian. Now listen, policies surrounding immigration can be debated, but the reality of immigration cannot. Millions of people have settled in the United States of America. Many have fled war-torn countries and are seeking a fresh start. Many are seeking some sort of hope which can never be found in Allah or any other God or the American dream. And listen, regardless of our political views, if you're a Christian, your theological convictions must move you. God has put your neighbors around you on purpose. Do do we pray about that? This is one of the things I know that some of us certainly are praying for. I encourage us as a church to be praying that God would use us to be able to reach the nations. There's an open door here. But one of the things that would be required to do that is to open our homes. To open our homes and to invite people in to have a meal, to learn about them, to hear their story, where they've come from. And for us to share with them the message of Christ. Hospitality, Delray Baptist Church, is one of the most important parts of evangelism in our day. Because there's so many ideas out there about what a Christian is. And if, if they're just getting it from, from Fox or CNN or wherever, <laughs> there's going to be a quite a big misunderstanding about what a Christian is. I encourage us to be a people to see that God has given an open door that we might, He has opened a door for us, let us open our doors as well. If you'd like to talk more about what that might look like, I'd be happy to, to speak with you. Another thing, so another way that an open door before us right now in our time is that we have an opportunity to speak with grace and truth amidst a cultural confusion. We have an opportunity to speak with grace and truth amidst cultural confusion. We live in a day where everybody is confused about just about everything. I mean, if you, I mean, if you just look at the headlines or if you just watch an evening of shows, you're going to see there's so much confusion about sexuality and gender and mental health and animals and everything you can think of. Now listen, Christians do not have all of the answers, but God has given us the ultimate and sufficient answers that the world does not have and can't ever find. Listen, one of the things that, that, that it's, that's helped me early on in becoming a Christian is as I studied lots of other religious, religions and world systems and philosophies, nothing made sense like, like the biblical worldview. So if you're here today and you're, you know yourself to not be a Christian and you want to talk about that, I would love to process some of that with you because that was a big part of me becoming a Christian is, is looking at the fact that the way that God describes the world is true and it matches up with, with, with reality. So though we may not have all the answers, God's word is indeed sufficient. So truth, but also the way we speak truth matters, right? Because we live in a day where far too many demonize and vilify and crush those that we disagree with. But we have an opportunity to show the same kind of gentleness that Jesus has shown us. The same sort of kindness that Christ has shown us. This doesn't mean that we ought to be cowardly or doormats in any way. Meekness is not weakness. We hold convictions, but we hold them with kindness. And when God gives opportunity, take it. Uh, 
one of our members was sharing with me this week how they were, they were part of a diversity training at, at work. And they said they were a little bit nervous just because they didn't know what they were, were going to say when it was their time to talk. And um, everybody kind of went around and talked about the different values that matter to them and um, which pronouns they wanted to be referred to and all the different things that are part of those trainings. And when it, when it came their time to speak, um, they talked about what, what mattered a lot to them was grace, forgiveness, and repentance, and how, how much they valued those, those important things. And um, they said it was, you know, it was a quiet moment, um, but afterwards had several people come up and say, you know what, we, we need some more of that around here. Let's talk about that. And listen, not everybody's going to like everything that a Christian has to say, but that, that's not our job. Our job is to speak the truth, but to do it in a way that is charitable as well. We have a unique opportunity in our day to speak with grace and truth. Another open door, thirdly, is, is to portray peace and unity amidst turmoil. To portray or to show peace and unity amidst turmoil. Jesus, when he shed his blood, Ephesians chapter 2 says he tore down the dividing wall of people, between people groups. And he unites us as one. He has made us one. We are one. We are to be eager to cultivate that unity. But listen, in our, in our day where political turmoil and racial tension rages, there are many things that are going to divide the world. And yes, I understand the church has not had a good history of always handling these things well. But Delray Baptist Church, this is our time. This is the day in which we live. God has placed us here. This is one of the reasons we try to have what are oftentimes uncomfortable conversations about race and politics. It's not because we love talking about those things all the time, but because they matter to God. Because it affects the way that we follow Him and the ways that we love one another. Jesus shed His blood to purchase our unity. And by His Spirit, I believe we can be a witness to the world. That they would look at us and say, okay, I know y'all don't agree on everything, but tell us why you love each other so. Fourthly, another open door for our church here is to train transient disciples. Train people who aren't here very long. So one of the, yeah, we live in a city where people come and go often. That could be really tough. Uh, Mark Dever calls it hugging the parade. Um, where you, I love you, bye. You know, and it's, it's hard for those, especially those of you who are here for long term, you know how weary that can be to build relationships and then see people go off. But if we have an exile mindset, meaning that we know that this world is not our home, one of the things that it, it awakens us to is that we have a stewardship right now to, to be able to, while you're here, however long God has you here, to train one another in using God's word to proclaim his name and to build one another up to, to grow in maturity. This is why we have classes at 9.30 on evangelism training or, or foundations, which walks through theology. Or John Henderson does uh, biblical counseling training on Wednesday nights. There's lots of different things that are going on. We have Bible studies. It's aimed to teach in such a way that builds us up so that if God does move you off, that you'll be able to go and to bless another church. This is a unique opportunity that we have that, that other places don't. And then fifthly and finally, a unique open door for our church before we go back and, and consider what else Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia is, is that we have an opportunity to hold out a better hope than the American dream. We have an opportunity to hold out a better hope than the American dream. Listen, we live in one of the most free, wealthy nations 
in the history of the world. We live and work and play next to the epicenter of perceived power. America is built on this idea that you can be whoever you want to be and that you can have whatever you want to have if you just work hard enough. And listen, there's good things about, about all of that, but those are not ultimate things. And what a Christian has is they realize that they have a treasure in Christ that's greater than anything else. If they ever need to walk away from any part of that dream, then they are happy to do so. And in fact, even coming to Christ means crucifying that as being the reason that you're alive. And that's confusing to a world. It doesn't mean that when we lose a job it's not hard, but we, they, they can see a peace that passes understanding. It gives us a freedom with the way we use resources that God has given us. That we're happy to give it away to those who are in need rather than cling on to it like it's our life. That we don't, we don't fight back when people slander. We don't revile in return, but we take our cues from Christ and show gentleness and forgiveness. Listen, brothers, I think the Lord, there's lots of these, and I think it'd be a good thing in your community groups and over lunch to talk about what some more of these might be, but I believe the Lord has placed us uniquely where he's placed us and made us who he's made us to make his name known in this time. And just as the church of Philadelphia was supposed to see that, I believe we are as well. And in the midst of the weariness that comes with trying to live that out, we've got to look to Christ who is indeed our strength just as he was for theirs. So Jesus encourages this church. He gives them a good word that though they are weak and been shut out, he sees their, he sees their works. He sees that they have not denied his name and he assures him, them of his love. Now something bad, point two, nothing. There's nothing. Jesus says, no word of rebuke for this church, only encouragement and exhortation to keep pressing on. The only other church that's like this is Sardis, who was also persecuted. So believers, be encouraged in your obedience that the Lord sees and is pleased. Nothing bad to say to them. Which brings us to our third and final point. Something hopeful. Something hopeful. These believers who are weary, they are sealed securely forevermore. They have been rejected by their friends and their family and the culture around them, but they have been received by Christ. Now there's, been, there's, there's hope-giving assurance weaved all through these, these verses. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go back and, and point them out to us. We've read a few already. Um, they're going to be slightly out of order, but I think you'll see why we, why we flow this way. Look up, look down at, at verse 11. The first thing we need to notice, he says to this church, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is really the point, one of the main points of the entire book of Revelation is to alert believers that Jesus is indeed coming soon, that the sands of time are sink, sinking, that, that, that history is moving to a moment in which Jesus will return and he is coming soon. Revel, uh, Romans chapter 13 says we are now nearer than when we first believed to seeing him. He says, I am coming soon. He says, Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So in the midst of the weariness, they're to keep looking upward with eyes of hope, knowing that Jesus will come and he's going to make all things right. We sang today, he will hold me fast. 
Well, we hold fast to him knowing that we get strength to hold fast because he holds fast to us. And he, he urges them here to not allow someone to, to steal their crown. It's, it's basically a, just a, a warning for them to continue to cling to faith in him. And the way that warnings work for believers is we hear that and it causes us to press in to say, then help me, Jesus. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. Secondly, in verse 10, verse 10, secondly, verse 10, notice here, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who, dw- who dwell on the, the earth. One of the things the believers also know is that indeed, as Jesus is coming soon, that it's, mo- it's coming to a, a moment of, of, of judgment. Now, I don't, I don't believe that this is a, um, a temporal thing that's going to happen to this church that he's warning them about, that he's going to secure them through, but rather this is, I believe, a, a, speaking about the great white throne judgment at the end of all things, where we see in Revelation chapter 20, that, that he, is, he is keeping them from the hour of trial, that great moment of trial at the end of the age when all people will be judged according to what they have done, and that if they are in him, that He will hold them fast and secure them in the midst of that. Because on that day, those who are not in Christ, who stand in their own righteousness, they will have no hope on that day of judgment. I do think it's important to notice here that Jesus is is speaking primarily of spiritual uh, protection rather than physical protection. There is indeed going to be suffering and persecution. But Jesus promises to keep them as they cling to Him. I also don't think he's speaking here of a rapture that would occur before a great time of of persecution. Rather, he is giving them this word because they are going to be enduring this tribulation that is coming upon the world. There's a tribulation that's already begun now that will end in the great day of tribulation. He is keeping them now through all of the testing and trials for the last day. Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 6, uh, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And then John 17, 15, he prays to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is what I think Jesus is laying before this church. He is keeping them. He's going to keep them from the evil one during these days of tribulation as he is pressing against them. And on that last day, they will stand because he is their advocate. Verse 9, a third thing that he promises them, another hopeful thing. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is a mysterious text here, but in some sense, during the judgment, all those who did not believe will certainly bow before Jesus but in a sense will bow before the church as well because they did not recognize them as truly being loved by Jesus. I, I don't know what that will look like. All I, all I know, believer, the way this is intended to encourage us in our suffering is to know that if those who mock and persecute will not bow a knee to King Jesus, one day they will. And that because you are in Him, All sins that have come against you for Jesus' name will be made right. 
We trust the Lord will sort this out in a way that only He can. Then finally, look down at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and make my own new name. He says, I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Pillar is a picture of stability and security. The church is called the pillar and the foundation of the truth in 1 Timothy 3. Now again, you remember this city was known for earthquakes. This is a picture of stability. It's a picture for them to know that on that last day when the Lord shakes all things in judgment, that they will be secure because they are in Him. Also, this mentioning of never going out of it, never going out of the, 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 the temple here. Remember, they were cast out of the synagogue. Well, they no longer need to be fearing that they'll be cast out, but they are going to be brought in to that eternal home that they will never lose. And he says, verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down of, uh, out of heaven. If you remember, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48, concludes with a vision that the exiled people are to take encouragement in of God restoring the temple. And I'm not sure if you remember or not, but the way that that vision ends is in Ezekiel 48, 35, the name of the temple. Anybody remember the name of it? The Lord is there. That's the name of the temple, which the exiled people of Jerusalem were to, to, from Jerusalem were to hope in that God was going to restore them back to the land. But it's also a picture of the final restoration when we will be brought from our days of exile in this land and brought into the new temple in which we will see God face to face. And this is what he's speaking about here when he talks about his name being on us. We will have citizenship. For those of you who, who are not born in America, and, and I, I, we've watched celebrate as you, as you, get, you get papers, you get your name, and you're, I'm here. There's a, this is true for all believers, that one day we will be before the Lord Jesus, and his name will be on us, and we will never be sent out. But we will be in, in that home where, where trial and tribulation shall be no more, where every tear will be wiped away, and we will see his face, and we will know that indeed He has loved us. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope that is laid before us. God has given an open door, one in which we come in fellowship with Him, and also a door in which we make Him known that others may come in in fellowship, all with the hope of that day that soon we will enter that final kingdom and we will see Him forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your Word. And we pray, Father, that as we consider this word to the church in Philadelphia, that you would help us, that you would help us to, Lord, to be strengthened by the assurance of your love, that, God, we will, by your grace, keep your word, that, Lord, we will endure patiently, trusting that you will keep us from that, the tribulation that happens even now and the tribulation that happens on that last day. Oh God, would you help us to hold fast, knowing that you hold fast to us. As Jesus said, we, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh Father, would you give us ears to hear that we may receive your word. Help us. In the name of Jesus.